Uh, welcome again, everyone here uh, to Lord of Grace. Welcome everyone watching us online. Uh, I hope we are all settled after getting after processing in. And um, so now here we are, and we are we are at the point in our Lenten journey where Jesus has finally come into Jerusalem. And you gotta remember what a big deal this was because most of Jesus's ministry, he didn't go into Jerusalem. He did most of his teaching out in the countryside. And as he moved closer to Jerusalem, people kind of anticipated and anticipated it was a big deal, him coming, uh, after three years of being out in the countryside. And if you remember how Jesus' ministry started, right, he started out uh, at the age of 30, and he was down at the Jordan River, he got baptized by John, right? It said the heavens opened up and the Spirit came like a dove, and then, and then what did the Spirit do? It led Jesus out into the wilderness, Right? We talked about this last week, a couple weeks ago. We talked about the temptation, right? And this, the Satan guy called the Satan, the tester, is what his name means in Hebrew, guided Jesus out into the wilderness and shows up, shows up there and gives him three tests, kind of three double-dog dares. The first one was the simple one. You're hungry, I dare you to turn that rock into bread. And Jesus says, no, you can't live on bread alone. And then... There's, then the third one that comes along, the, la the last one, if you remember, I'm not going in perfect order. The last one, he took Jesus to the top of the temple in Jerusalem, way up high, and said, I dare you to jump. A double, triple dog dare you to jump. The angels will carry it, says, says so in scripture. And Jesus says, nah, don't put the Lord your God to the test, Mr. Tester man. But the second one is the one I want to look at a little bit more. And the second one, temptation, is the one where it says, the Satan took Pilate, or Jesus to a tall mountain. And uh, tall mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, these can all be yours. And this was the temptation to what? Power. I'll give you total power over all this. Worship me. Right? All you have to do is worship me. And so Satan was tempting him with this power. You could be the king. Well, let's fast forward a little, three more years, and what's happening? Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and people are hailing him as king. We're kind of, the story's kind of come full circle. The prophecy's coming true. He's being tempted again with power. All these people are coming there. As we saw with the kids, they're throwing their cloaks on the ground. They're cheering. And they're not just cheering because they're excited that they heard the guy provides free food. And they're not just cheering because they've heard he provides inspirational messages. Oh, that's true too. They're cheering him on because they're hoping this guy might be the one who starts the insurrection against Rome. A very political motivation they've got. They're, and what they're doing is they're giving Jesus their hopes, their dreams. They're, they're giving him their, their loyalty, their allegiance. They're hoping that he will take this power that they give him and seize it and start this war. They are tempting Jesus with power. And now Jesus has a couple choices, of course, right? One uh, is to just let this go to his head. Take the power, take the moment. The crowd is here, the crowd is ripe. Mobilize them, let's get this started. Get a throne, you know, some gold, all the trappings of a king. Or he can resist that temptation 
and just sit in that donkey and ride in. And he can have the peace of mind to know that the people are cheering him on, but that they're hungry and they're desperate and they're oppressed and they're angry and they're frustrated and they're hoping somebody, anybody can get them out of this. And I think Jesus went along with the parade because he could have he not done the parade. That's a good question, right? You're not planning on doing what the crowd wants. Why are you going along with them? But I think he went along with the parade because I think he's also wanting to make a statement to Rome. He wants them to see how angry and desperate the people are. He wants to, he wants to be the voice of the people, just not in the way they want. And, of course, we know that he doesn't mobilize the crowd. He doesn't give in to temptation. He just stays calm and goes along for the ride, right? He literally goes along for the ride. But what you have to see here in Jesus is, he, is that he has a different kind of frame of mind, one that doesn't react to the temptation, to the flattery, to the, crowd, to the crowd's adulation. He, he, he has a frame of mind where his heart doesn't get all sort of fluttery inside at having all that cheering Right? I mean, it feels nice to have people chant your name and roll out the red carpet for you. It feels good to see all these people. Oh, the people love me, right? Feels good to be flattered. But that feeling of being flattered can also be a really good tool that people use to manipulate you with. You think, for example, you know, a lot of us probably in our past have that. That one ex-lover that, you know, was really smooth talker. You know, the one that the one that could the one that could sell anyone on anything, right? Oh, babe, you're the prettiest, uh, you're the prettiest I've ever known. Oh man, you, you're so special to me. Like I, I all those other girls are nothing to me. They don't mean anything. Oh, oh, you know, and they talk so smooth. Oh, you're so special, man. All that stuff, that doesn't mean anything. I just want to be with you, babe. And you're like, oh, that feels so good. It feels so good. It feels so good to be wanted. And it feels so good to be needed. And it feels so good to be paid attention to and to be treated like you're special. And that feeling can be so good that it makes you start to shut off the rational part of your mind and, and quit making these sort of calculations that your parents are telling you to make. They're like, well, yeah, he may be good looking and Treat you special, but have you looked at his work history? Oh, oh, Dad. You're such a fuddy-duddy. His work history, doesn't he have seven kids with five women and he's behind on his child support? Dad, he loves me. Wait, my friend at the corrections office said, said that he knew him back up in Florence. You sure this is the guy you want to be with? Dad, we're in love. And then you're like, all right, now and you're the dad, and you're like, well, now what do I do? If I push her too hard, then she'll go running into that guy, right? Maybe try reverse psychology. Do you know this guy loves dishes, housework, and is really good with bookkeeping? Make him sound boring and responsible. Maybe then she won't like him. I don't know. But why does he do all this? Why? Because we love that flattery, and it causes us to kind of forget. This is how you win friends and influence people, right? Dale Carnegie wrote a whole book about it. I read the book. It's if, I, if I had to sum it up, Make people feel good and they'll give you stuff. It's not 
rocket science in a sense. And, and, and you, so what you're doing is you're taking something that's normally really good. It's a good thing to treat people like they matter. It's a good thing to speak well of people. It's a good thing to give people attention. Those are good things. But a manipulator takes those good things and spins them around and hopes that they can use that for their own power. And this is what the crowd is doing to Jesus. This is what they're trying to get him to do. They're flattering him. They're adoring him. They're, they're, they're giving him honor and glory and praise. They're cheering him on. They're hoping that he'll get swept up in the moment and be the leader they want him to be. But if you'll notice, they're singing and they're praising. They're not doing a lot of asking. Jesus, why are you coming into Jerusalem? Hey, Jesus, what's your agenda for the next week? Hey, Jesus, you know, we're looking, we're looking for a new kingdom. Could you help describe what it's like? And Jesus, I'm sure, would be like, I just spent three years telling you what the kingdom of God is like. But, right, they don't ask. They're just talking. And Jesus is there on that donkey. And he's riding in while they're cheering him on, but he doesn't chime in with that. You don't see Jesus sitting there going, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, you guys are the best mob of all the mobs I've had. I mean, you, you're a really special mob, you know. You guys, your cloaks are better than the other cloaks in Caesarea. Man, you're way, you, you, you mob, you mean so much to me. You know, he isn't like doing that. He just sits there and keeps on riding. And how does he do it? Well, how does he not get caught up? He's got a different frame of mind. He's got a different mind. He's got a mind that doesn't get excited by the cheering, but can see past. And he has that, that kind of mindset that the Bible calls a godly mindset. And that mindset wasn't focused on taking power. It was focused on God's plan. Philippians 2. The Apostle Paul words this perfectly. When he goes and he quotes this old hymn that was being sung in the churches, even before his time. So this hymn had already taken off in Christianity by the time Paul was planting churches. So verse 5, verse 5 is Paul's writing. He tells the church, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And here's the hymn. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So here's what he tells his church. Let the same mind be in you that was in Jesus. The same mind. He doesn't say the same heart. It's the same mind. And I'm a nerd. I looked up the Greek word. It's definitely mind. Um, thinking, intellect, reason. The heart, the, heart, the heart, you see, can do so much good for us. But it is prone to getting caught up in the moment and maybe not always making the most rational decisions. I mean, think about it. When was the last time, you know, a bunch got together and said, we're going to have a girls' weekend in Vegas, man. We're going off to Vegas to make good, responsible decisions. <laughs> when was the last time you saw an Instagram selfie video? Here I am at the restaurant eating a fruit salad and an orange juice while, make, while thinking carefully about the consequences of my actions. Woo! Nobody ever says what happens in Vegas spreads around because it's good for you. 
Their logo isn't a giant broccoli. Right? Nobody says that. Why? Because the whole point is making bad decisions. Right? All that thinking things through, that's kind of boring, right? I mean, how many times, you, you know, you think in your own life where you're like, how come I could be so good in this area and I could screw up here? You know, you meet someone who's so super competent and can manage a business and staff and do all complicated things, and then they fall for someone who's a total loser, and you're like, what happens? Because you can be smart in life and dumb in love. Because we like that flattery. It makes us feel good. The head, the mind, sometimes has to intervene and take over, kind of keep us on the right path. And Jesus is here, ignoring what all our hearts would probably tell us to do. Because, yeah, it feels good to be cheered on like a hero. And instead, Jesus is looking ahead to God's plan, which is you must stay nonviolent, you must speak the truth, and you must accept the consequences that come with that. Because remember, Jesus, at one point, as it says in that hymn in Philippians, he had all the power in the universe, and he gave it all up. So before he started anything, he already gave up all the power. That had to have been a hard choice, a painful choice. And he starts out as a little human. How humiliating for someone who helped make the universe to give it all up and be the servant. This is hard stuff. This is what, So when Paul says, let the same mind be in you as in Jesus, he isn't just saying be nice and use fewer curse words. He's saying give up your desire for power your need to be wanted and loved by the crowd. Give up that need for validation. And by giving that up, you serve them the best. That is a godly mindset. That is the mind that steers towards godly ways. Now, I'm not against the heart. You know, I'm an anti-heart. I don't want us all to be Vulcans. You know, your Vegas cocktail is irrational, Susie. You should have less. You must learn to use your reason. Live long and prosper. For the Trekkies out there who'd get that. The heart is what gives us joy and makes life worth living in many ways. But it also just needs some guidance from a godly mind to steer us away from the flattery and the temptations to power. So take on yourself that mindset, what Paul's saying, of the guy who loves the crowd but refuses to be manipulated by them. Now, I know someone's going to say, so Lars, how do I do that? How do I do that? Well, I can't give you an easy answer, um, but here's what I know. When you try to change your mind to make rational decisions, to make decisions that are long-term, you have to calm down. When you're worked up, you're really bad at making good decisions. And I've had to try to train myself, too. You know, my wife will tell you I'm totally level-headed all the time and I never get riled up by things, right? <laughs> and part of it is acknowledging in yourself, all right, I'm really revved up, I'm, I'm really angry, I need to just step back because as long as I'm either, as long as I'm really revved up about one thing or another, I'm not going to probably make the best decision. I need to calm down. And I think in our world it's hard to do that because we're so busy, we're not calm very often, we're just... Go, 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 go. And when you're go, 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 when do you stop to actually, you know, say, okay, 
What's the godly path here? So yeah, I'll tell you what I tell everybody all the time. Spend more time in prayer, devotions, reading the Gospels. That always, you know, to get that godly mindset, that's always a good place to start. To calm down, to think better. It isn't like all stress is going to go away. There's no magic cure for that. But when you spend more time in the presence of God, God's presence is powerful enough that it makes you not need all the flattery out there. It makes it seem not as important. And then, of course, sometimes it just involves some doing. Remember how Jesus started out. He started out by giving up all the power he had. So in essence, he had no power anymore to protect. You didn't have to worry about losing it. And starting at living that humility made it easier to keep living that humility. It, it allowed him to stay on that donkey without getting swept up by the crowd. It allowed him to be able to honor the crowd and their feelings without having to become one of them. And, and he did it because he had that, calm, that godly mindset, but I think he also, as I said, could see that plan. He could see what God's long-term plan was beyond that, beyond any kingdom that they could give him here in this earth. And that was based on faith. So there's no magic formula for having that godly mindset. But I just return to Palm Sunday and say, you know, see Jesus riding in and remember what the godly mindset is. Amen.